0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Klobus, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with William E. Ellis about his biography of the 20th century journalist and author Irvin S. Cobb, entitled Irvin S. Cobb, The Rise and Fall of an American Humorist. Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
1: Well, I'm a native Kentuckian, uh, lived here most of my life. I did spend uh, half a year in uh, New Zealand on a Fulbright back in 1989, and I got an undergraduate degree at Georgetown College and then a master's degree at uh, Eastern Kentucky University and a Ph.D. at the University of Kentucky. Uh, I taught for four years in high school, three years in a junior college, and 29 years at uh, Eastern Kentucky University. I retired in 1999 and almost immediately had a heart attack and had to have uh, bypass surgery and survived that. And since then I've been able to do a lot more writing and, uh, uh, also play golf and do traveling and, uh, uh, enjoy my retirement as much as I can. It sounds like a very full life. Well, it, it's been a nice life. I can't complain about it. I've got a good family and had a lot of support from a lot of different people. I've had some really good mentors, uh, in my professional life. And, uh all in all, it's been, it's been a good ride.
0: I was wondering if you could explain to us what it was that led you to Irvin Cobb as a subject.
1: Um, I'm interested in humor, and I collect humor. And I do some writing. Uh, I write for a, a magazine, Kentucky Monthly Magazine, and occasionally I'll write uh, a humor column of things that I've collected, as well as historical events uh, that may be coming up or something about history. Uh, I've always been interested in humor. Uh, so about probably 10 years ago, I started collecting humor and I was working on another project and uh, Urban Cobb has been written about. There have been several good books written about Cobb, uh, which didn't stop me from writing another book about Cobb. Uh, he's... Uh, not mysterious, but he's an interesting person because of the way he came up in life. And and uh, uh, the book is called The Rise and Fall of an American Humorist. Although he came from Kentucky, especially western Kentucky, which is considered to be the most southern part of Kentucky. Uh, some people suggested that I call this call him a southern humorist. But uh, you can't really call him a southern humorist, although he dealt with a lot of southern themes in his humor because he went off to New York City and made uh, lots of money made lots of friends he was a member of the Algonquin uh, uh group he uh was just part of the the New York the New York scene for more than 30 years so you can't really call him just a southerner uh in many ways he uh demonstrated what it meant to be a southerner in the early part of the 20th century and that's for better or worse uh, Cobb, uh, was a racist, which was not unusual for a man of his time and place and where, especially where he came from in the most Southern part of Kentucky, he came from a, a background of, uh, Confederate veterans and, uh, but he was able to transcend that in some ways. In some ways he never got over it, you might say, but he was a very, uh, uh became a very urbane man, even though he only, uh. Went to school to the age of sixteen, but he had a an exceptional memory. You might almost call it photographic, and he could recall things from Shakespeare, from other uh, English writers. Uh, he had some uh, facility in Latin because uh, one of his uh, uh, friends, father's friends in Paducah, taught him Latin. So he was a typical early twentieth century. Well-educated man, even though he didn't have a great uh, uh, university education, he somewhat flaunted that at times, and uh, that got him into trouble with some of his New York friends because he, uh, in many cases, would just talk too much, and that uh, that irritated some of his uh, some of the people that he knew. Uh, he was not liked by uh, H. L. Mencken. Uh, Mencken didn't think that he really had a great sense of humor or didn't write very well about humor Uh, They never got along very well uh, and on several occasions and in several of his publications Mencken specifically criticized Cobb for his uh, style and his writing and his humor, but that was typical of Mencken. He criticized most people (laughs) and uh, Mencken is uh, often made out this uh, almost demagogue to a lot of people uh, Mencken was um, uh, very arrogant. He was uh, pro-German in both World War One and World War Two, as a matter of fact. Uh, and he was uh, a racist in his own way. So he's, um, you know, he's a typical early 20th century person, too, with all of his good, good things and faults about him. Hmm. So I got interested in Cobb because uh, he is an outstanding writer. He wrote uh, uh Voluminously, he wrote uh, uh, the first time he really got his teeth into a big story was the the uh, uh, trial of uh, Henry Thaw in the early 20th century. Uh, And that's was made famous in a movie that came out. Oh, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, The Girl in the Red Velvet Swing and Thaw murdered uh, Stanford uh, White, who was. uh, uh, the lover of, of at least at one time of, of the wife of Thaw, And she was a showgirl, and it's a, it's a great story of the early 20th century. Cobb wrote uh, in what were called space rates. And the space rate for early 20th century or late 19th, early 20th century newspaper men was to really write as much as you can and write, of course, in an interesting way. Now, this is before radio. it's It's obviously before television. Um, Movies uh, are really just the flickers in the early part of the 20th century. You don't get talkies until the mid-1920s. So uh, many people, uh, not particularly well-educated people, read a lot. They read newspapers. Newspapers had several editions a day. And Cobb got into the newspaper business uh, because really there was nothing else for him to do in Paducah at the age of 16 or 17. And he found his niche in life and like uh, most people who are lucky to do that, uh, he was able to capitalize on that and become quite a wealthy man. He was making all as much as $10,000 a year uh, by the end of the first decade of the 20th century, which would translate today into hundreds of thousands of dollars. And he was uh, always successful in selling almost anything he wrote, Uh, He acted in movies, he did movie scripts, he did plays. Uh, He tried his hand at uh, writing uh, libretto for a musical. Uh, And he was uh, very adept at getting into all phases of of, uh, show business in the early part of the 20th century.
0: He led this very remarkable life, and in reading your book, one of the things that makes it remarkable is the uh, very humble beginnings from which he came. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us a little bit about his uh, childhood, the uh, you know the Kentucky from which he came and and uh, how it was that uh, he was able to get into journalism.
1: His family was uh, uh, he makes probably a little more out of it than it is. Uh, his family was uh, a middle class family. His father was a Confederate veteran uh, who had lost part of his eyesight during the war and uh, became an alcoholic. And Cobb uh, uh, wrote about that, and I think uh, it hurt him all of his life what had happened to his father. But his his grandfather, who was a physician, his mother's father, and other people in Paducah uh, kind of doted on the boy and helped him in his education. And as I said, he didn't have much formal education. At the age of 16, he quit school, and he was soon able to get a job with the Paducah newspaper. And at that time, Paducah was a bustling city. It was southern. It was western. It was on the uh, Ohio River, very close to the Mississippi River. And Cobb, uh, in his life, said that he had a, a boyhood, much like that, uh, of things that were written about by Mark Twain in a much earlier period, of course. And Cobb even wrote a very realistic uh, sort of Tom Sawyer uh book later in his life. And several critics who read that book it's called Going On 14. Uh, and he wrote other stories in a similar vein. Uh, think it's really more realistic than the stories of Mark Twain about uh, uh, Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. So he had this uh, great ability to remember things, to meet people, to be friendly. Uh, he was uh, still in his uh, late teens when he covered the story of a, a Chicago criminal who escaped to Western Kentucky. And, uh, uh he was able to interview this man and said, send, send the articles back to, uh, the Chicago papers and, uh, made a hundred dollars plus expenses and, uh, kind of proved it himself, proved to himself that he could do work like this. He later, uh, stayed with the, the, the paper in, uh, Paducah. He went briefly to um, uh, Cincinnati and and, uh, then came back home. He married a a young lady from a well-to-do family in Savannah and uh, stayed in uh, one of the Paducah papers for a while. And then she and other people encouraged him eventually to go to New York City. And as Cobb said, the the goal of every newspaper man uh, at that time, 1904, was to, to go to the big city. That's where the action was. That's where the big newspapers were. Uh, And there were a lot of famous reporters writing at that time. uh, Some of the most famous people in America were writing for newspapers. And Cobb realized that and he took a chance. He was about 27, 28 years old when he went to New York. And uh, he mentioned that uh, when he came into New York City, he felt just like the immigrants uh, coming over from Europe on a ship, that it was just an entirely new experience for him.
0: You make that point in your book uh, that – yeah, one of the things that makes Cobb's uh, uh, you know rise so remarkable is that it really is this golden age of journalism, where you have, as you just mentioned, these really great talents out there writing. Uh, this is the heyday of, of of yellow journalism, which was very sensationalistic. But you had people, uh, uh, you know, throughout the journalistic profession who were uh, very talented, and Cobb, as you describe, not only very quickly rises to the top in terms of his. Uh, his Western Kentucky community, but he also uh, does so in New York city, which is the largest journalistic market in America at the time.
1: He did that. uh, It's not as surprising as you might think. There were a lot of people from not only uh, Kentucky, but from uh, other writers from other parts of the United States who went to New York city and made it big. Uh, There were also a lot of people that failed of course, but uh, that was the place to go in uh, the late 19th, early 20th century uh, if you wanted to make it big. I think Frank Sinatra even sang a song about that at one time. If you can make it big in New York City or you can make it big anywhere. And this is a, a, a time and place where there's a lot of growth. There's a lot of immigration. Uh, factories are booming. Uh, it's a, a period of uh, great wealth, also great poverty. And Cobb was sensitive to all that. He, Even though he became middle class, Uh, Not long after he got to New York City and then eventually started making quite a bit of money I think he always had a common touch and he liked to feel like that. He wrote for the common people that he wasn't writing for an an intellectual group and that was the conflict that he had with uh, I think with Minkin and uh, (coughs) If you read uh, (coughs) things written by Minkin a lot of his things are uh, Intellectual in a way, but also I think kind of put down the middle class and especially put down poor people the image that you get of uh, Mencken in, a, in uh, a movie or like Inherit the Wind is uh, not, I think, what the image of H.L. Mencken actually was. So Cobb was always uh, energetic. Uh, his daughter, who wrote, a, who wrote a fine biography of her father, and then Cobb also wrote his autobiography uh, toward the end of his life, uh, but his daughter uh, told about how nervous he would be and that he had recurring dreams that at some time in his life, he would be unable to keep writing, that he would lose the gift. Uh, Cobb's genius, and I think it was genius, is that he he could, uh, for at least 30 years, keep uh, not only uh, reinventing himself, but inventing ways of writing about America. Uh, he did that in... Uh, newspaper columns. He would continue a column uh, in newspapers uh, until he went to the Saturday Evening Post, and he would alternate uh, these columns about various people, about how they they viewed living in New York City. He didn't have a jaded view of New York City, but had a very realistic view of what life was like in New York City, especially for the wealthy and for the poor and for the middle class. And he could write very well about that, uh, because of his uh, powers of ob- observation. Let me read you a, a little part of my book, if you don't mind. Oh, please do. And it's uh, something that a lot of people, I think, overlook. But this story comes from the 1920s. And it's um, Cobb wrote uh, not only humorous stories, of course, which he's famous for, and he's especially famous for the Judge Priest stories, but he also wrote what he called his Grim Tales. And these are stories that he, he uh, for many, in many ways, took from, his, uh, from living in western Kentucky. He wrote one very famous story right at the beginning of his career as a short story writer about uh, uh, a happening on, uh, 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 of uh, poor people. And he would write about how, how these people reacted to what was going on in their lives. But this is a story he wrote later on called This Man's World. Two sisters, Annie and Anita, work in a big city department store for considerably less than their male counterparts. Because they were unable to support themselves, they must depend on men. Annie marries a manual laborer who tries to control her every action and instinct. Anita, the younger sister, lives with a well-to-do dandy who does the same. And Cobb says, Annie got herself a husband. Anita got herself a man. Both end up being cast out by these men. Annie is falsely accused of adultery. Anita is thrown out when she develops a goiter. The sisters go back together and attempt to eke out a living, of course, at a lower wage than men. Anita tells her sister, quote, You go straight and I go crooked, and the best either one of us gets of this is the worst of it. Sis, what is the hell wrong with the modern world? Cobb concludes this uh, modern theme by arguing brute force ruled and man being physically the stronger dominated society and women. Well, that's not a funny story. Uh, It's a very modern story. And some biographers see this as really a forerunner to what we've been hearing about in the last 30, 40, 50 years about the rights of women. And women should make as much money as men and uh, more rights and more uh, (coughs) uh, things should be given to women in, in the workforce.
0: Do you think that's an ahistorical reading, or was he very progressive uh, when it came to women's rights for his time? Say that again. Uh, what was he? Uh, is that an ahistorical reading of Cobb, or was he very progressive about uh, women's oh, well, rights for?
1: He was progressive. He um, he. Uh, of course, many things to him were comical, and he always had this uh, uh, way of looking at society that uh, uh, that I think. A lot of people have that, you know, uh, the world is a funny place. And, uh, if you take it as being funny, then you can, you can muddle through life. If you take it too seriously, then, uh, life can be a lot harder. <laughs> That's one of the characteristics of humor that, uh, if you can see the funny side of life and the humorous side of life, it makes it a lot easier. And that was what Cobb considered to be his objective in life, to point these things out to people and to show them, uh, uh, How life could be uh, a lot easier than they thought. He also, of course, uh, at the same time, he's got this hard edge to him. Uh, He had something of the small town uh, boy who goes to the big city, and uh, his daughter in particular thought that uh, uh, on a lot of occasions he was quite prickly about his life. She talked about how he... he, uh, Would uh, be unkind to people at times. Uh, He had three major uh, operations or three major health problems as well as uh, eventually becoming too fat. Uh, He ate too much. Uh, Coming from a a family, especially a father who was an alcoholic, uh, he did drink. He wrote a lot about liquor. Uh, He was opposed to prohibition right from the the beginning of the idea of Prohibition. Uh, he was elated when Prohibition ended. Uh, he wrote about uh, the bourbon industry in Kentucky. Uh, and some people have asked me, they said, do you think he drank too much? I don't think he did. I think he realized the problem that his father had. I think he enjoyed good bourbon. But I think at the same time he was, uh, he realized that it could ruin his life just as it had ruined his, his father's life. He portrayed himself as the happy uh, fat man, and that's what you see in his books. Uh, uh, He uh, always made fun of himself in that way. Uh, Now, is that because he really felt that way, or is that a self-defense mechanism? Uh, I'm not a psychiatrist, so I can't say that. But uh, he was, as far as mental health is concerned, I think mentally healthily, mentally healthy most of his life uh, until maybe the last two or three years of his life. And we can talk about that a little bit a little bit later. But uh, he wrote these grim tales, uh, and he wrote uh, uh, stories that people like to read about. Uh, some people have compared him with, uh, in some of his grim tales with Edgar Allan Poe because they've got kind of a, uh, an eerie side to them. But one critic says that Cobb's stories are always very realistic and the stories of Edgar Allan Poe are are many times just otherworldly and nothing uh based in reality it's
0: Fascinating to consider just how prolific he was, because you think about the life of a reporter and how so many reporters of that day were just focusing upon the reporting. But as you've already explained, he also wrote these short stories. Uh, of he wrote, uh, you know, longer works. He, what was his work schedule like? How was he able to produce the, this this gigantic corpus of of, of writing?
1: He worked. Um, uh, somebody asked me one time. Uh, about his uh nightlife uh one person even asked about did he play around with women and did he do this and did he drink a lot and and uh i think for the most part cobb was was pretty straight about everything he got to bed early especially when he moved to the suburbs he did on uh, two occasions and actually longer uh, on other occasions moved outside of new york city and then he would have to commute into new york city um and then commute back home at night, which took some time. Uh, but he worked on schedule, uh, and he would uh, write not only a lot of different things, he might work on a story for a newspaper, for, on a short story, and on several short stories at one time, uh, and keep these separate from each other. He had voluminous notes, and I've seen some of these in some of the collections that I've, that I've been to. He did a lot of revision And of course, as everyone knows, if you write for a newspaper or a magazine or newspaper, whatever it happens to be, uh, the editors are going to do some revision. And I don't think the editors of uh, most of his editors ever had to do much revision because he uh, revised things uh, uh, several times from what I've seen of manuscripts. He would send manuscripts uh, to uh, in the different collections that I've seen to different people. And they would be the, substantially the same story that's going to be published. But there'd be a little a little bit of a difference. And he would cut out something. He would add something. So he was constantly revising. it. Once he became uh, wealthy enough, once he had enough money, he hired a secretary. And she did a lot of his uh, typing and his revisions. And, um, of course, if you write for a major magazine, uh, as the Saturday Evening Post was in the early part of the 20th century, uh, they had, you know, all the secretarial help you could, you could desire. He turned out uh, some years uh, in the Saturday Evening Post and later in other magazines, uh, a story or an article about every other week. Uh, and that uh, it took a lot of time. It took a lot of effort. Uh, he stewed over it. He worried over it. His daughter recalled that he always wore a vest, as men did at that time, and he would twiddle with the buttons on his vest until he uh, pulled those off. And then he would set those down on a table. And then when she was a young girl, it was her job to sew those buttons back on his vest. (laughs) So he was, uh, he was a warrior uh, and he, uh, he did have this recurring, excuse me, nightmare that, you know, he might lose it someday. And eventually he did lose it. He did lose his ability uh, to create things. Which we can come to later, or whenever you want to. Uh, we can come to
0: it in, in a little bit. I actually want to get to uh, his uh, reporting of the First World War because you do spend considerable uh, uh, you know, space in your book talking about that, and it's it's something that that is very interesting because you both you know highlight this very important period in, in the world, of course, but but also you know the the ways in which it, it, he confronted this this major event and and the ways in which he wrote about it.
1: World War I, even reading, uh, you know, a hundred years later uh, about the beginning or the course of the war, the end of the war, um, um, it's like all wars. It's one that should never have been fought for many reasons. First of all, all the major uh, crowns of Europe were related to each other. Why should they get involved in a war like this? And uh, it all had to do with trade and with colonies and with uh, industrialization, with militarization. The building of big navies and uh, eventually there was there was there was no international means uh, to stop this. Cobb was uh, already writing for the Saturday Evening Post and was on vacation and he got uh, a letter from Lorimer who was the uh, editor of the of the post uh, that uh, his ship left in something like four or five days and uh, he was sent a pack uh, that even included a a, a revolver and uh, gold sovereigns. Uh, Cobb said he, that he went to Europe uh, jingling like a, a milk wagon. <laughs> <laughs> All these points. Uh, and he, he and three or four other men got to the continent. They went to the Belgian border. They floundered around. Uh, they finally uh, were actually captured by German soldiers. It's a wonder they hadn't been killed. Uh, he did say, and the men with him said, that they did not see German atrocities. And to, to his um, dying day, uh, people argued that he did see atrocities. But he did, uh, what he did see were, uh, or what he said he saw, were Belgian civilians who were either spying on the Germans or actually shooting at them, and that they were summarily tried by German authorities and, and executed um, uh, when he got back home, people questioned him about this. And he said, the war itself is an atrocity. It's not just the individual things that you see, but he was very, uh, uh, good at describing what war looked like. He, he described the sights and the sounds and even the smell of war. He, uh, on one occasion was taken by some German officers to a fort in Belgium, uh, Fort Lincoln, L-I-N-C-I-N, I think. I've forgotten how it's spelled. L-O-N-C-I-N. And uh, they were uh, riding around on horse horseback and then on automobiles around this this tremendous fort that the, the Belgian army had built. And it had been uh, bombarded by heavy artillery by the Germans. And then it, there was an internal explosion. And Cobb said that uh, they got to one side and then they suddenly smelled this horrible, odor of, of decaying flesh and I've forgotten his exact words but he said something to the effect that once you get that odor in your your uh, system you never forget it and he never forgot it so he wrote uh, about war in a very realistic way uh, he took uh, he told the Germans when they released him and the others that he was going to go back to the United States they went instead they went to England he had an interview with Ward Kitchener <clears throat> which Lord Kitchener d- denied having, <laughs> and, and uh, Cobb wrote about that. He, he uh, covered not only stories for the Post, but also for newspapers, and uh, turned out uh, uh, one of the best books, I think, ever about the realities of what war is like, right at the beginning of World War One, before the United States became involved and then uh, was uh, given a a great uh, feast in New York City. He was honored by everyone in New York City, and then shortly thereafter had uh, the first of uh, three uh, what were called gastric attacks, bleeding of the intestines, which uh, uh, could have killed him, but it didn't, and he uh, survived that and and ended up uh, eventually Uh, even making jokes about it. He made jokes about being in in Germany. Uh, The first part of his, in his original book, (coughs) he uh, was very serious about everything. But 10 years later, he sort of joked about the experiences of uh, riding a a German train or train, a German uh, trip train back into Germany. And uh, he and his companions were very hungry and he reached out the window and grabbed a sausage uh, because they were so hungry, just to have something to eat. Uh, he could have that side to him, but there was, all, there was always this uh, uh, very serious side to Urban Cobb. And I'm not a psychiatrist, and I don't try to, to, to be that in any way, but there was always something of the, uh, I think, the small-town uh, boy who uh, felt uh, that he always had to prove something uh, in the big city. And, of course, that's true. If, if you don't, it will... Uh, uh, you could be destroyed in some way. And he would write people, one of his friends in Kentucky, uh, in the 1920s, uh, said he wanted to come to New York city and start a career and Cobb said, don't do it. Just stay where you are and do what you do. Uh, and you'll be a lot happier because, uh, it took me so long to get started in New York city and to be a success. And most people don't find that kind of success.
0: It's the success that, as you, uh, by <coughs> 1917, 1918, as you described, he's not just a writer, he's a celebrity.
1: Oh, quite. And as I say, this big dinner that was given for him in New York City, everyone in New York City came there to this, uh, great dinner, and, and it was, uh, you know, well organized, and the band played my old Kentucky home and, and all that kind of, kind of thing. He was, um, uh, uh I'm not going to say um, nonplussed by all of this. I think he enjoyed being a celebrity. And one time he was asked uh, by a magazine, uh, you know, was it, he said, what do you think about being a celebrity? And he said, uh, you know, it's, it's wonderful to be a celebrity, but you have to keep proving yourself over and over again. And uh, once you lost that, then uh, uh, it's, you know, it's quite damaging to your, to your self-respect. And that's what eventually happened to Cobb uh, in his later years when, uh, when things changed. Not only his career changed, but uh, uh, entertainment changed, humor changed. Uh, one thing that uh, I think changed Cobb is that in more and more ways, he became <clears throat> more of a, a comedian than a humorist. While he was writing, for the most part, he was a humorist. And he, could, uh, he often said that uh, when you're a humorist, you have to keep uh, doing something new all the time and writing something new. Uh, if you're a comedian, especially on the stage, and he wrote sketches for some comedians. Uh, he said, if you're a comedian, all you have to do is just keep doing the same thing night after night after night because a different crowd comes into the theater and they laugh and, and uh, everybody thinks you're original when you're not original, you're just doing the same thing over and over again for a different audience. But if you're a writer, uh, those people keep a record of what you write, and they'll uh, they'll call you to task if you do if you do the same thing over and over again.
0: It was. The- the range of activities that you describe in your book in in, in the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties that just was really interesting because in my mind I I was making that comparison to Mark Twain in, in the sense that Cobb was a humorist and he was a writer and, and he produced books and, and uh, this range of material but you get the but in the nineteen twenties with the advent of modern technology radio and then movies he branches out and he becomes the this it, 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 he. In 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 his, in a his, modern part, he expands his profile. He he becomes uh, a, a figure on the screen. He you, you describe his friendship with Will Rogers and how he and Will Rogers are performing on, 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 on movies. And it's it's just such a, a, a very interesting uh, development for someone who was who had started out just as a journalist and a humorist.
1: Yeah. well, it's it's uh, it's uh, uh, an example of the evolution of of uh, entertainment entertainment changes with, uh, uh, with first of all, the, you know, the flickers, the, the silent movies, and he appeared in a silent movie or two. And then, uh, you have, uh, eventually you're going to have the talkies in the mid twenties, and then you're going to have radio in the early 1920s and Cobb, uh, for, um, many reasons was always looking for a way to make a little bit of money, a little bit more money. And for many years, he made an awful lot of money. He spent a lot of money uh, on homes. Uh, he, on two occasions, he built homes outside of New York City, which were quite, quite expensive. His last home that he purchased in uh, California in Santa Monica had originally been the home of uh, Greta Garbo, and before that, another silent movie star. I looked that up on the internet not too long ago, and it's uh, uh, right now it's valued at something over $10 million It overlooks a golf course It has, I don't know how many rooms and bathrooms and swimming pool. Uh, I don't know what that house cost in, uh, uh about 1935, but it would have been a lot of money. So he spent a lot of money and, uh, uh, had to keep writing and had to keep producing and had to keep, uh, uh, making a lot of money in order to keep his lifestyle. That, that takes a lot of out of a person. Uh, If he could have been this, uh, uh, a writer uh, who, uh, there's one I've I've used as an example in here. George Ade, A-D-E, was a writer who lived in Indiana, uh, who wrote for Chicago papers and magazines. Uh, He made a lot of money. He remained a bachelor, I think, and and eventually gave a lot of money to Indiana University. Uh, The football stadium is uh, called Ross Ade Stadium but he stayed in one place. He stayed in Indiana. Uh, he didn't r- rumble about like, like Cobb did. He didn't try to do more than what he, he really was adept at doing. And what A did was just write about Indiana, Midwestern people. And Cobb did more than that and had more friends and had more opportunities and got into, <coughs> if you say into radio and, and movies. Uh, he even, uh, in the early days of television, when television was just being invented, <clears throat> he had, he said that, you know, this is going to be one of the greatest things uh, in the history of the world. And, of course, it has become one of the greatest things in the history of the world, as well as the other media that de- have developed since then. But he was always looking for the next chance, the next next uh, opportunity. And uh, that came from his uh, ability to uh, see what was going on in the world. It also came because he, he always thought he had to do something a little bit better all the time.
0: And yet, as you've already uh, uh, inferred, the there is uh, a decline in his uh, in his output in, in his uh, ability near the end of his life. What, what did he just exhaust himself? Did he uh, spread himself a little too thin? What what exactly happened to him?
1: Uh, several things. Uh, he did, for example, he did become older. Uh, he did have more and more health problems. His last two or three years of life uh, were very miserable. Uh, He died in 1944. He became uh, more and more conservative uh, politically uh, as life went on. He felt that in some ways life had passed him by uh, and that uh, he was no longer appreciated as much as he once had been. His uh, saving grace for a while was when he was – when he was asked to come to Hollywood, that was 1934, I think, and he's already, uh, you know, becoming an older man. He's going to die ten ten years later. Uh, he's becoming an old man. He's uh, his style of humor is becoming a little bit outdated. Uh, this is the uh, mid 1930s. I might also say that that uh, uh, you know everything's changing in the 1930s because of the Great Depression. And people who were once heroes or no longer heroes uh, he uh, one of the things that really hurt him uh, more than anything was he eventually lost his a newspaper column and that went through several stages and and Cobb uh, several days a week, not always five days a week, would write you know just humorous stories <clears throat> and It was a moneymaker. When he lost that, he lost a, a pretty good chunk of his of income, but in nineteen thirty four he was asked to come to Hollywood by Hal Roach to uh, make uh, a series of of, uh, comedies, short subject comedies, uh, much like the Laurel and Hardy comedies and Our Gang and things like that, which were very popular. And Cobb was not a success as an actor. And if you see uh, some of the pictures of him uh, uh, in in, uh, makeup and dressed uh, comically, uh, he doesn't look like he's really enjoying it. But he did that because it was a way of making money. His daughter said that he really always had wanted to act uh, and to be an actor, and he now had his opportunity. Well, that series failed. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, Will Rogers, John Ford, uh, kind of took him under their wing, and he became uh, an, an advisor for... for uh, the Judge Priest movie, the Judge Priest movie made by uh, Will Rogers in, uh, I guess it was 1934, was uh, based on Cobb's stories, but not written by Cobb. And it's uh, uh, you know a syrupy uh, Southern story. Uh, it's got all the stock characters, including Stephen Fetchett, who played the the black man in it. Uh, it's got uh, a southern bell. It's got the old Confederate uh, uh, ideas behind it. And it was a very popular movie. And, of course, anything that Will Rogers made was popular. Rogers was, uh, uh, I think I say in the book, and, and I know this sounds kind of harsh, but uh, it's always a good thing to die at the right time. And <laughs> Will Rogers died in a plane crash in Alaska right after uh, – Uh, steamboat round the bend had been made in which uh, Cobb had played a a role and um, he was just uh, such a popular American Democrats and Republicans loved him and uh, he's famous for that saying that he was a member of what was it the most disorganized political party I'm a Democrat
0: I'm a a member of of no organized political party I'm a Democrat
1: (laughs) Um, everybody just loved him and he was a lovable character but few people realized that uh during the height of the depression when most you know a lot of people were in bread lines uh, he made 120,000 for a movie plus a big percentage of the of the uh, receipts gross receipts so he was the common man but not not a poor man and he portrayed himself uh, you know as the uh as somebody that that uh, could just identify with anybody and he could and he and Cobb became friends and Cobb became kind of a semi advisor on uh some of the movies uh that were made about the South. And Cobb loved life in Hollywood. The problem was he was becoming older and his health was declining. Uh and in the meantime he he decided to uh uh try to cash in on it. Uh he was in two or three movies uh after Steamboat Round the Bend. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but it's a it's a you know kind of hilarious mid nineteen thirties Will Rogers movie and it's one that, um, uh, uh, you know, most people could watch, uh, if you, uh, can put up with the racism, is it in it? Uh, and Cobb played a minor role, but he's not, obviously not an actor. Uh, and he could not, uh, pull off anything like, uh, what, uh, what Will Rogers could do. John Ford, uh, made a lot of movies and a lot of great movies. Uh, Will Rogers is kind of the second or third in line of, of the uh, heroes that he put in movies. The first was Harry Carey and then, and then, uh, Will Rogers. And then of course, one of the later heroes he uses all the time is, is, uh, my mind's left me for a minute. John Wayne. John Wayne. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot about John. Yeah. John Wayne. And, uh, if you read recently about John Wayne, uh, Uh, writers say that he was entirely a creation of John Ford and that John Ford quite often made fun of him. Can you imagine somebody making fun of John Wayne, the great (laughs) hero of all these movies? But he did. Uh, So Cobb didn't quite fit into what was happening in Hollywood. In the late 30s, movies become more serious because of what's going on in the world. You know, the rise of Japan uh, Nazism, uh, Italy, uh, Mussolini. Uh, the world's getting to be more and more dangerous place. Uh, there's a little bit of uh, improvement in the American economy, uh, but certainly not you know great prosperity. Cobb got to be more and more conservative as time went on and uh, especially developed uh, an enmity toward uh, President Roosevelt, especially toward Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, And he uh, became uh, uh, an enemy, really, of uh, Senator Albin Barkley, who was from Kentucky and who, for a short time, had been in Paducah at the same time that that Cobb had been in Paducah. So it's um, you know he's a a very uh, man with a a lot of pride, and he should have a lot of pride because of of the accomplishments he made. But uh, uh, hubris outdoes us all eventually, and it certainly did in. I think, uh, the character and the, the, uh, great things that Cobb did. So that's why I call it the rise and fall. He was, uh, uh, he rose, uh, as high as anybody can. And he fell not maybe as far as everybody could, but his last years, he was in bad health in Hollywood, his, uh, his wife came there, his daughter who went through, uh, eventually three marriages. Brought her children out to Hollywood, out to Santa Monica, to the to this uh, beautiful home, and uh, uh, they uh, had to kind of scrimp and save. They didn't give parties like they did when they first got there. She told the hilarious story about her father. Uh, he had a, he had uh, uh, terrible teeth. Eventually, had to have his teeth pulled and had dentures. And uh, they went to a movie one night, and he. Took his dentures out because they were uncomfortable and put them in. Thought he had put them in his pocket, and she said when they got home they found out that that uh, she could tell by looking at his mouth that he didn't have his dentures. And she reminded him, and the next day uh, somebody at the theater found his dentures. But uh, <laughs> he was not a very uh, uh, cheerful person in his last years. Hmm. Um, and of course, as you know, I've, with my bad back, I'm standing up giving this interview right now. So I can attestify to being uh, not in the best of health at the
0: age of 78. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before you go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Oh my gosh. Well, I still write articles for um, the magazine, Kentucky Monthly. Uh, I try to do something new and fresh every month. Uh, I keep two or three months ahead right now. And these are only 900 1500 words but that takes more work than you might think um, because I like to make them factual and and uh not controversial but at least uh interesting to people right now I'm working on Floyd Collins who was a uh, caver who was trapped in a cave in Kentucky in 1925 and uh it was it was absolutely one of the first big news stories uh, c- comparable to uh, Lindbergh's flight, which is of course in 1927, man trapped in a cave for several days. He eventually dies in the cave, and and uh, he is uh, uh, used by the press. He's used by people. Uh, he was a very common man in a you know a very uh, terrible situation. Wasn't that so the uh,
0: inspiration I'm, for uh, Ace in the Hole?
1: Yeah, that's that's what I've heard. Yeah. Which yeah. is in another part of the country, but you know uh, it's a it's a story of uh, of uh, uh, you know an average person in a terrible situation and how uh, they either get out of that situation or they don't get out of that situation. In this case, he didn't make it, and then later in life, his uh, his body is uh, put on display, and it's all part of a uh, terrible publicity stunts. Uh, by a lot of different people so i'm working on humor which i'm still very interested in and uh, different types of humor and i may do some writing about humor but uh, as i've told people uh at the age of 78 i could not do a book like urban cobb again because it took so much time i had to travel to uh libraries uh which i love to do but uh to go to uh you know houston and get driven out of town by a uh, torrential rainfall, which we did. And then went to university of Texas, Austin two or three times to look at papers and to uh, go to other libraries. It takes a lot of time and effort. And, uh, uh, I don't really have the energy to do that anymore. It took, uh, I didn't read every word that urban Cobb wrote, uh, but I I read a lot of it, and uh, a lot of his things are repetitious. Uh, and some of the stories are derivative, but uh, I still tried to read as much of it as I could. And and uh, uh, as I've told somebody not long ago, I said, I, I have not written the last book on Urban Cobb. There are going to be more people, I hope, will write about Urban Cobb and see him in a different way. But the way I saw him was, uh, you know, that he was a great man who rose to uh, – great fame and fortune and uh, then began to uh, falter and fall and and did not uh, live a happy life. He died uh miserably uh he had uh several ailments including diabetes uh, uh, retention of water, which had to be uh, uh taken off and uh uh, couldn't sleep couldn't eat and uh, you know miss the old lifestyle of of uh, being with people and and uh, that's pretty hard to give up in your uh, even in later life mm-hmm. Bill, thank you
0: very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us about uh, irwin Cobb and his and his life. Uh, I hope you have a wonderful day
1: all right glad to do it thank you.